If you'd like to go ahead and, and find your way to Nehemiah chapter 8 in your scripture, uh, invite you to do so. And as always, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. I found that we often talk about revival or renewal, and and in our church over the last several months, and in fact, it's actually been a couple years. I have I have uh, put in place a plan to try to lead us to think biblically about what church revitalization looks like and how that transpires. So I want you to want you to understand this morning that it's not by mistake that we're in the book of Nehemiah. It's, I don't, I don't uh, flop open my Bible and think, Lord, what book should I preach on? Whatever it falls open to, that's what we're going to preach on. That, that's, that's not how it works. It's, it's not by mistake we're, we're here. We, we uh, looked at 1 Corinthians for a reason, and then we looked at Acts for a reason. We looked at the book of Hebrews for a reason. We looked at the book of Haggai for a reason. We went to Jonah for a reason. And we're in Nehemiah for a very specific reason. And if you remember, in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6. The focus of Nehemiah 1 through 6 is this rebuilding the wall. That's the focus of Nehemiah 1 through 6. It kind of coincides with rebuilding a church. And if you remember in Nehemiah 1 through 6, there were some there were some some folks Sanballat Tobiah and Geshem, right? That they didn't want the wall rebuilt. They were, they were upset and they did everything they could to prevent Nehemiah from rebuilding the wall. And, and in those messages, we talked about how there will be those that would come against rebuilding efforts, right? They would stand against rebuilding efforts. And primarily, Often what we see is the reason why, why folks want to come against rebuilding efforts and why Tobiah and Geshem and, and uh, Sanballat came against the rebuilding efforts all has to do with shift of power. And so they were no longer going to be the power players, and they didn't like that. And so often in church life, that's exactly what happens. You try to rebuild and shifts in power cause people to say, I don't like that. I will do all I can to come against it. And we know that Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem did all they could to stop the rebuilding campaign. And one thing we made note of is that in the church today, there will be people that have infiltrated the church that will do all they can to stop God from rebuilding his church. It's just the way it is. And our prayer is that as we go through this effort, that God would be glorified, that God would be exalted, because this church is God's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's God's church. May he be glorified as we seek to be biblical in what we are doing. Then we come to chapter 7, right? Chapter 7 is this whole idea of, of Nehemiah looking at the past. And he brings out the books and, he's, and, and he, he begins then this process of what we kind of start today and we will continue throughout and that's this idea of rebuilding the people rebuilding the wall rebuilding the people rebuilding the church rebuilding the people my prayer is that as we look at nehemiah chapter 8 this morning that god's word would penetrate our hearts and our lives and that we would be moved by his word. J. Vernon McGee gives an illustration that there was once two little old ladies who were walking out of church one Sunday. One said, my, that preacher certainly preaches for a long time. Her friend replied, no, he really doesn't preach a long time. It just seems like a long 
time. It just seems like a long time. I can't help but wonder what they would have thought about a service that had about six hours of Bible reading and preaching at the request of the people during which the people stood the entire time. Oh, it gets even better because the people come back the next day for even more because this is the remarkable situation that we find ourselves in in Nehemiah chapter 8. It would be accurate to call what happens a revival or a time of biblical renewal. Now, what is vital for all of us to note is at the center of this revival or biblical renewal is the exposition of God's word. The Tyndale commentary says, This day was to prove a turning point. From now on, the Jews would be predominantly a people of the book. And as we will see, if we want to actually have biblical renewal in our life, then there must be a strong emphasis on the Word of God. And throughout the centuries, the people of God have gone through cycles where His Word has been neglected and the spiritual condition of His people deteriorates. And in His grace, God sends renewal. And inevitably, if we want to see such a renewal, then there must be a renewal on the emphasis of the Word of God. In the Old Testament, when Judah was weakened under the godless reigns of King Manasseh and his son Ammon, and Ammon's son Josiah began to seek the Lord when he was just 16 years old, and he instituted spiritual reforms. And then Hilkiah, who was the priest, found a copy of God's law, and Josiah called the nation to repentance. Revival and renewal come about because God's word was obeyed. This is what happened during the Reformation. At the heart of the Reformation was what we know as sola scriptura, scripture alone. The Roman Catholic Church had neglected the word of God, and priests were the only ones that had access to it, and many of them were ignorant of its contents. John Whitecliffe and William Tyndale worked hard to get the Bible translated into common English. Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, and John Calvin began to preach expository sermons explaining and applying the word to the people of Geneva. And the Reformation, sola scriptura, renewed the people of God. The exact same thing was, was true of the Puritans, of the Puritan revivals in England. And America in the 16th and 17th century, J.I. Packer writes this, For Puritanism was, above all else, a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was, in truth, the most precious possession that this world affords. His deepest conviction was the reverence for God, means reverence for Scripture, and serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the Creator than to neglect his written Word And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to him than to prize it and pour over it and then to live it out and give out its teachings. Intense veneration of scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoted concern to know and do all that it prescribes was the Puritan's hallmark. So what is the big deal about Nehemiah chapter 8? Well, I hope we will see that this morning. If you are able and willing, will you please stand with me for the reading of God's word in Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Mataniah and Shema and Ananiah and Uriah and Hilkiah and Messiah and his right hand. 
and Pedaiah and Mashiel and Malkijah and Hashem and Hashbadaniah and Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Achab and Shabbatiah and Hodiah and Messiah and Kelita and Azariah and Jazabad and Hanan and Peleiah and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah was a governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not neglect, or do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way and to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And on the second day, the heads of the fathers of the houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booze during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem and go out to the hills and bring branches of olive and wild olive and myrtle and palm and other leafy trees to make booze as it was written. And so the people went out, and they brought them, and they made booze for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square and at the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in the booze from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun. And that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Let's pray. Father, it is your word. pierces our hearts. It is your word that divides us asunder. It is your word that calls us to repentance. It is your word that changes lives. Oh, Lord, may we be people of the book. As your saints listen, may your word be proclaimed, and may we be obedient. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What we see in Nehemiah 8 is this biblical renewal or or revival. The wall is completed. Provision is made for security. We've seen the perseverance of the people. Things are looking good, but something's missing. They needed renewal. So what will we see this morning? We're going to see some some things focusing on God's Word. We'll see a request for God's Word and a reading of it and a reverence for it and a response to it and a reaction to it and finally the requirements of it. So first we see this morning there must be a request for God's word. Now notice with me how chapter 8 begins. It says that all the people gathered together, the people dominate these verses. Ezra is there at the request of the people to read the book of the law. They've come a long way. They've built the wall, but there's something missing and they want what's 
missing. So there must be a request for God's word. So let's see what this all looks like. There is an assembly. They're assembly together. Right at the beginning of verse 1, we're told that all the people gathered. It does not say half the people gathered. It does not say some of the people gathered. It does not say three-fourths of the people gathered. But rather, it says all of them. This really kind of struck me as I was reading this, especially in our day, when it's rare for all the people in a church to be present in a worship service. These people did not have to be chased down. They didn't have to be dragged. Nobody had to go after them and say, hey, we need to get you to this meeting. Their farms and their hobbies and their families and their fishing holes or whatever it might be did not keep them away from the Lord. They were serious. They had a genuine heart for the Lord. We read in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is Paul writing in Hebrews by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's giving very specific command that we don't forsake the assembling of the local church. It is incredible how many people, probably right here in Washington, Illinois, who claim to be Christian but have no desire to go to church. They forsake the assembling of themselves together and they never give it a second thought. And whenever we have a lack of concern for the things of God, it reveals an underlying heart problem. Our worship is an outward expression of an inward affection. In other words, people worship what they have an affection for. For some people, that might be baseball or football or something else. But the more we love God, the more we have an affection for God, the more it takes to keep us away from His bride where we worship the one in whom we love. The whole point of us us coming in here is to worship God. God, of whom we say we have affection for. So if, if church is like, ah, I can do with it or I can do without it, it really doesn't matter. That, don't you understand that says something about your heart? Listen to the words of the psalmist. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122.1. Can you say that? Are you glad to come into the house of the Lord? Any religion that won't send you to church is a dead religion. And failure to identify with and faithfully attend a local Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church is a sin. So we see their assembly. Now notice their agreement. Their agreement. I love this. Not only did all the people gather, but they gather as one man, it says. They come together at the square by the water gate as one man. There is both harmony and unity. They're not at odds with one another. They're not bitter towards each other. They're not fighting one another. They gather together in unity, expecting to hear from God. Did you know that in the book of Acts, we have established uh, the church. There are at least six times where it says that God's people were in one accord. That's unity. There's no wonder why the early Christians enjoyed the blessing and the power of God. The word accord is a Greek word. It's homothumos. It's a compound word. Homo, meaning same, and thumos, meaning mind. And so what it's saying is that they were of the same mind. It's saying that they were single-mindedly, that they were in harmony and united in their cause. We read, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, Acts 4.32. Unity. Unfortunately, and some might even say tragically, this is what's missing from today's churches. You see, there was an assembly of people, of one heart, one soul in a genuine spirit of unity. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant 
It is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Unity among God's people is praised as a precious thing. Biblical unity is produced by the Spirit of God when the people of God come together with the mind of Christ. I'm not saying that we just kind of go all all willy-nilly and we just let anyone do what they want and and compromise doctrinal integrity within the church. In fact, some people say that that sound doctrine is, is not crucial, but sound doctrine is crucial and essential. And when people say doctrine divides and love unites, that's just camouflage for compromise. What I am saying is that unity happens when we get rid of all of our selfish motives that we bring to church with us. That's when unity happens. Unity happens when you set self aside. When you decide, oh, they're not doing it my way. I'm just going to be a grouch. I don't, I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't, I don't like this turning Christmas tree over here. And, and oh boy, I'm upset about that. And, and, and these unity candles, I don't like unity candles and blah, 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 blah. And we go on and on and on about the things that people complain and gripe and get bitter about. Preference. Not sin, preference. We bring our selfish motives with us into the church. But when we get rid of our selfish motives and we seek to have instead the mind of Christ brings us together. We're unified. We glorify God together. And God blesses greatly. So we see their agreement, but not only that, we see their appetite. We see their appetite. In verse 1, here's the first time that Ezra is mentioned in Nehemiah. Ezra left Babylon about 14 years earlier. He was not only a priest, but he was a scribe, which means that he was a learned man in the things of God. Scribes were the scholars of their day. They had an intense love for the word of God. They labored in the word and were recognized as authorities of the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Anyway, the people display their appetite for God's word because they go to Ezra and they ask him, bring the book of the law. They knew where to go for directions. Look what it says. Bring the book. It's initiated by the people. They had an appetite for the word of God. And the whole revival began by their request of Ezra to bring the book. This book, of course, is God's word. And, of course, this book should be the book that we desire above all other books. It should be what our appetite is for. Even Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God in Luke chapter 4, verse 4. True worship begins with a hunger for God's word. Why is it that with so many claiming to be believers in today's society, they lack a hunger for the word of God? God's people should want his word. Job said in Job twenty three twelve, I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food the new birth demands spiritual food it's very natural for a christian to crave spiritual food just like a newborn baby craves milk hunger and thirst are evidence that you are alive one of the first things a newborn baby wants to do is eat why because new life produces hunger If you have no appetite, that's a sign that something's wrong. A believer who has no desire for the word of God is spiritually sick. And a believer who hungers for God's word is giving evidence that they are alive and healthy. But also notice that they knew exactly what this book was. It was the law of Moses, but God had given it to Moses and they knew it. It wasn't just some preacher's words. It was what, or it was that which the Lord commanded. It was the very words of God, and the people knew it. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, 1 Timothy 3.16. Men pen the Bible, but God is the author of the Bible. 
When it says the scripture is by inspiration, that means that God breathed it, that God breathed it out of his mouth, that he breathed out his word. Men pen the words, but God is the author. He breathes it out and he guarantees his word and he backs it with his name. Now listen, people make statements all the time. They make statements about preachers all the time, believe it or not. I've had people boldly say, I don't agree with you, pastor. And that's fine. Not everyone has to agree with me. I'm, I'm perfectly okay if you don't agree with me on something that is not in here. I'm fine with that. The real issue is whether you agree with God. That's the issue, right? If what's being said is from God's word and you say, well, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with what you just said. Then you're not taking issue with me. You're taking issue with God. If a preacher stands and preaches the truth of God's word and people don't accept the truth of God's word, their issue is not with the preacher, but their issue is with God. These people in Nehemiah knew that God had given the word and that they were responsible to know and obey God's word. So that means that when the preacher preaches God's word and there's something in there for you to obey, that means that you're responsible, church, to just be obedient. That's what it means. And isn't that the hardest part? Especially when it's not something you want to do. Right? I've been reading this book and, and I read something and I feel conviction and that's where it gets hard. I don't want to do that, God. I don't want to do that. So we're seeing there must be a request for God's word. Now let's see that if we want biblical renewal, if we want renewal in our church, there must be a reading of God's word. They've gathered together and they ask Ezra to bring the word of God and the people are, are, are ready to hear from the Lord. Which, by the way, there's a mistake in your, in your notes somewhere. I think it's point number three is not in there and it should be. I'm adding a point that's not in your notes, just so you know. You'll know when you get there if you're taking notes. It's right in the Bible app if you're using that. Ezra has been teaching the Torah for 13 years. Not only is he a scribe, but he's, a, he's also a priest. As a scribe, they would meticulously copy the scripture. As a priest, he would faithfully study and teach it. Ezra was a learned man. He had devoted his whole life to the study and exposition of the scriptures. He had a desire to teach God's people what God required of them. Now notice it says, all that could hear with understand, with understanding were in attendance. The whole community was there. Parents brought their whole family. Six times in this chapter we read all were present. Dads, moms, kids, all attended. This is the same kind of commitment and involvement we need in our churches today. They gathered on the first day of the seventh month. The seventh month was a special month for the Jews. It was the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. Three important events took place during this month. On the first day, the Feast of Trumpets was celebrated. On the tenth day, the the Day of Atonement was celebrated. And on the fifteenth day was the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. So this was a very significant month for them. Now, please note that Ezra read from early morning to midday. In other words, he read for six hours. God's word was prominent in their meeting, and the people were attentive the whole time. The word of God was important to them. Today, it seems like we crave little sermonettes, right? And often, when we get a true sermon, if if that sermon runs an hour, well, that pastor, he didn't do his job. He should be able to cut that sermon down to 25 or 30 minutes. Any believer who's walking with God longs to hear the word of God proclaimed. Five times in this chapter. Five times Nehemiah uses the word understand or understanding. Speak of discernment. It's one thing to hear the truth. It's another to grasp it. When it talks about understanding, it's 
Speaking of the ability to separate fact from falsities. There's a lot of people that memorize Bible verses. They read their Bible, but their lives are falling apart. Some people say, well, a Bible that's falling apart belongs to someone who isn't. That's not necessarily true. I've seen many people's Bibles falling apart, and their life is in shambles because they lack understanding. They have knowledge, but no discernment. Discernment hears the facts and distinguishes between what is right and what is wrong. In the book of First Chronicles, the soldiers are gathered at Hebron in support of David to establish his rule in Israel. Over 350,000 of the greatest soldiers of the day gathered together with David. Among them, the Bible says, were men of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command, First Chronicles 12.32. These men had discernment to know what Israel ought to do. Discernment enables the believers to make sound and biblical decisions. But let's see their passion. Let's see the passion. So we see that there must be a reading of God's word, and we'll also see the passion. Last part of verse 3 tells us, And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Nehemiah 8.3 The word of God occupied the attention of the congregation. They had a passion for God's word. According to Webster, the word attentive means to be heedful, intent, observant, mindful, to regard with care or attention. They were focused on God's word. We would do well to focus on the scriptures as well, right? Stephen N. Wagers wrote this, Today many churches have become an amusement park that majors on food, fun, and festivities rather than on the fundamental foundation of the Word of God. Many people will come to church, hear singing, watch a movie, or see a children's play, but few come to church with a burning desire to hear what God's Word says in His Word. May the Lord help us to get back to being attentive to the Scripture. This wasn't story time for them. They weren't, hey guys, let's gather for story time for six hours. This was the truth of Scripture time. Do you listen attentively to the Scripture? Let me encourage you to do so. To listen to the reading and preaching of God's Word. Listen closely for the sake of your own soul. Let me give you another reason to listen attentively. That you may or may not care about. And that's okay, because... I don't need you to necessarily care about it, but as a preacher who stands before you speaking God's word, it's encouraging when I know you're locked into the message. So here are three good reasons to listen attentively. One, so that you honor God. Two, for your own soul. And three, to encourage the preacher. Let me just say that God could have used any means he wanted to to communicate his truth to us, but he used his written word. The strength of any church will be in direct proportion to the number of people in that church who read and study God's written word. If we don't read and study God's word, we will never be a strong church. They had a passion for God's word. But I also want us to notice the pulpit. Notice the pulpit. Now, Ezra stood on a pulpit raised above the people. This was planned. They didn't just throw this together one day. Like, oh, let's hurry up and build this so, so he can get up there. Ezra is prepared with these 13 men with him. When pastors stand to preach today, we may not do it exactly like Ezra, but in a sense, it is a model for what pastors do when they stand at a pulpit on a raised platform before a gathered congregation to preach God's word. There's biblical warrant for preaching. Preaching is not negotiable. It's not, well, we can do with or without the preaching. Now, you may feel that at times, but it's not negotiable. Moses and the prophets preached. Ezra did something like preaching here. Jesus and Paul preached, and Paul commanded Timothy to preach the word. What Ezra did in Nehemiah 8 is is a little bit different. For one, even though I get accused of preaching a very long time, I do not go from daybreak until noon. That is true. And if if we grow weary with 50 minutes of preaching, we will never... We will never, ever, ever 
understand what riveted these people for six hours. Ezra also has 13 men assisting him. Six on his right, seven on his left. We don't know exactly what they did. They may have helped with the large bulky scrolls or just helped the crowd hear. And so we've seen there, there must be a request for God's word. There must be a reading of God's word. Now let's notice that there must be a reverence for God's word. This might be the point that's not in there. There must be a reverence for God's word. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people so everyone could see. And part of the reason everyone could see is that he's on a platform. That's why it states for he was above all the people. It's not about his importance, but it's about positioning. It's letting us know that the word was open on the platform. In other words, the word of God was elevated. The focus of this chapter is the word of God and the platform was not above the people to exalt the person. But it was done to exalt God's word, not so that we worship God's word, but so that God's word has prominence. God's word is vital and should be reverenced, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word, Psalm 138.2 tells us. If God says his word is above all things, then we should make it above all things. And so what, it, what, it, what did the people do when Ezra opened the word of God? It says they stood. Now, this is not why we started standing to read God's word in church. Some of you may have read that and go, oh, that's where pastor got it. This is what we call descriptive language, not prescriptive. In other words, it's describing what they did. It's not a command for us to do the same. So this verse is not saying that every time God's word is read that people need to stand up out of reverence. Nor is it saying that if we do not stand up, it's an indication of lack of reverence. The truth is, you could stand to your feet and still be dishonoring God by not listening to the reading or allowing your mind to wander. The point is not some external action, but that we recognize the importance of the Bible and act accordingly by listening carefully and repenting of sin and obeying the Lord and trusting Him to save us. Reverence does not hinge on the Bible, but on the Lord. We love God's Word because it reveals God to us. That is what makes the Bible precious to us because it makes God known to us. But we don't worship the Bible. We worship God. So you might say, why then, pastor, did you start having a stand when we read God's word? And I think that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Well, because we live in a culture where church members increasingly slouch in worship. And any excuse I can find to introduce a physical posture that calls attention, especially at the cost of personal comfort, should be welcomed. In other words, it calls attention to God's Word. And it gives proper respect at a small expense. So what I'm saying is that worship should cost us something physically, so therefore, we stand. If we want biblical renewal, there must be a reverence for God's word, but also, fourthly, there must be a response to God's word. God expects his people to respond. It's unfortunate that many people today fail to respond to the preaching of the Bible. So what happens is Ezra blesses the Lord and all the people say, amen, amen, and they raise their hands. You've heard me say this before a few weeks back, but it bears repeating. The word amen is an expression of agreement, meaning so be it. It's an expression that voices your in agreement in faith and certainty with what's being said. They are agreeing with Ezra and they're honoring God and worshiping God. And then they, they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their face to the ground. Their desire for worship flowed uh, from their reverence of God's word. Their approach to God was one of humility and honor. A.W. Tozer writes this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring, in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle of the 20th century. It's a tragedy, tragedy that today 
Many think nothing of coming to God's presence as if we're going to a movie or a ball game seeking to be entertained. These are not true worshipers. Instead, they're looking for something to make them feel good. Charles Spurgeon said, Saints are described as fearing the name of God. They are reverent worshipers. They stand in awe of the Lord's authority. They are afraid of offending him. They feel their own nothingness in the sight of the infinite one. The people of Nehemiah's day had this deep realization of what it meant to come in and worship the living God. Genuine worship can't be replaced with entertainment, church. Or it ceases to be worship. May God help us to get our head into his word and our heart on him. Oh, that we'd understand that music is not a requirement for worship, but it aids in worship, and it must feed the inner man and not the flesh. Praise and worship flow from our affections. And for it to be true worship, we must worship the God of the Bible. And to do that, we must know the Bible. And we must know Christ as our Savior. You cannot rightly worship God if you do not know Jesus. You can engage in religious activity, but you can't worship God. So part of this response to God's word is that worship of God. But we also must notice the expounding that took place. Men stood on the platform of Ezra. They explained the law to the people. They made the reading clear and gave the meaning to the people. Probably Ezra would read a section and then his assistants, perhaps in smaller groups, would expound on it. There's a lot of the Bible that's plain to anyone that reads it, but there are parts that's hard to grasp. God has given to the church pastors and teachers to help his people understand and apply his word to their lives. Plus, today, we're blessed with all these Bible tools, right? We have study Bibles and handbooks and word study books and commentaries and Bible encyclopedias and theological books and all this stuff to properly apply the Bible. We must properly interpret the Bible. And to do that, you must understand what the author meant for the people and and that what he was writing in the context of this day. Additionally, you must always compare Scripture with Scripture because the Bible interprets itself. Sometimes you need to know the customs, the historical events of the day. Sometimes you need to know the original language. Sometimes you need to consult scholars to know words and grammatical constructions. Always you must interpret a verse or section of scripture in its broader context of the book which it's written. If you take a text out of context you can make the Bible say just about anything you want. So let me give you two things we see here. One, accurate, clear, and applied to life. When we expound the scripture it needs to be accurate, clear, and applied to life. You can make all kinds of interesting points, but if they are not accurate, then they're no good. If you're not accurately reflecting the passage that you're teaching, then you're not teaching the Bible. Not only should it be accurate, but it needs to be clear. People need to know what's being said. The job of a Bible teacher is to communicate the truth clearly. Sound teaching must be accurate and clear and apply to life. When you study the word personally and when you teach it, your aim is to answer this question. So what? That's a question I always ask. So what? What difference does this passage make in my life and in the lives of those that will hear it? John Calvin said, When I expound the Holy Scripture, I must always make this my rule, that those who hear me may receive profit from the teaching I put forward and be edified unto salvation. If I do not procure the edification of those who hear me, I am sacrilege profaning God's word. The word of God is not to teach us to prattle, not to make us eloquent and subtle, and I know not what. It is to reform our life so that it is known that we desire to serve God, to give ourselves entirely to Him, and to conform ourselves to His goodwill. Second thing is there must be a commitment by the teacher and those who are taught. When Scripture is expounded, there must be a commitment by the teacher and those who are being taught. So a teacher needs to take time to study God's Word. You can't teach God's Word accurately, clearly, and apply it to life if you don't study it. You can't just read a text and say whatever pops into your mind. Yet many pastors do that, right? You can 
Tune them in on TV sometimes. And they'll read a passage of Scripture. And they'll say, the Holy Spirit's leading me to say this. Even the apostles who were taught directly by Christ and directly by the Holy Spirit had to say no to certain ministry demands. Why did they have to say no to certain ministry demands? They tell us, right? Acts chapter 6, verse 4. So that they could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. If the apostles had to devote themselves to the task of preaching, how much more do I? However, we must also understand that the ones being taught you guys. You have to be committed to the word. So what that means is in the church, those who are not gifted in the area of teaching take on the necessary ministry tasks so that those who teach can study and prepare. In other words, according to the Bible, there must be a division of labor according to our spiritual gifts. And that, that principle is laid out in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a gifted administrator who could organize and mobilize people to get the wall built. But when it came time to teach, is he doing it? Nope. Ezra is. Because Ezra skilled in the law of Moses. He had studied it, practiced it, and taught it. They illustrate team ministry. If we want biblical renewal, there must be a request for God's word. There must be a reading of God's word. And there must be a response to it. And then we see that there must be a reaction to God's word. When people hear the word of God, there is always a reaction of some kind to it. Some hear God's word and they get glad. Some hear God's word and they get sad. And some hear God's word, and they get mad. This is the way it is. The way people react to the preaching of God's word is an excellent indicator of their hearts. Notice how the people reacted. The outcome. Verse 9 gives us the outcome. They listened to God's word. With deep conviction comes upon them, and they wept and they mourned. They realized how much they had sinned against the holy God. The fact is that the more light of God's holy word shines into our heart, the more we will see areas in our life where we do not conform to the righteousness of a holy God. Biblical renewal always involves repentance. In other words, if you want to be renewed, it will involve repentance in your life. If you say, well, I want to be renewed, it involves repentance. I want our church to be renewed. It involves repentance. But notice Ezra rebuked them. Because this is to be a day of celebration. So let's see the order. We see the outcome. They mourn. Let's see the order that Ezra gives. Ezra gives some orders. Celebration of the Feast of Trumpets was a holy time of eating food and drinking the sweet drink. Which is wine, if you want to get technical. And we can talk about that later if you want to talk about it. The clouds of repentance break up and break and bring the son of godly joy into our hearts. God never wounds us to hurt us, but to heal us. The joy of knowing he's forgiven our sins and that we are his people should fill our hearts with joy. Our joy is an inner contentment that is produced by God. It's not dependent upon your external circumstances. Joy does not turn us into little circus clowns where we see ha- seem happy all the time. Because joy is not based on outward circumstances, but a right relationship with Christ. If you lack joy, it has nothing to do with your circumstances and has everything to do with your relationship with Christ. This leads to good deeds. As they're reminded to send a portion from the part of the sacrifices so that they could eat, uh, that they could eat to those who had nothing. God's word produces compassion in our hearts for the needy. His word tells us, that, tells us that, that his salvation is to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, Titus 2.14. Then all the people are stilled, which is to say they are quieted to prepare them. For what? For the obedience. We have the outcome. We have the order. We have the obedience. Verse 12. Change takes place in their hearts. Weeping ceases. They begin to make great rejoicing. This is made clear to us because the people understood the words that were declared to them. It makes it clear that the knowledge and understanding of God's word, along with our obedience, results in rejoicing. 
So, so biblical renewal, there must be a request for God's word. There must be a reading of God's word. There must be a response to God's word. And there must be a reaction to it. And finally, let's notice the requirements of God's word. The requirements of God's word. It lays out some requirements for our lives. As we study his word, we begin to discover God's wisdom and his will. It is said of the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night in Psalm 1-2. The fruitful believer spends much time in God's word. There's a love for God's word, there's a labor in God's word, and there's a life that lives God's word. The people of Nehemiah's day loved God's word. They believed the commands of scripture. That they were that. Commands. Not just suggestions. Let's quickly notice four things that God's word requires. One, diligence. Verse 13, we notice that the next day the heads of the families gather again for the reading and the teaching of God's law. This is diligence on the part of God's people. The day before they had spent six hours hearing the word read and taught. And now they're back again for more of the same. It's a sad commentary in our day when Christians would never come back if we kept them anywhere near that long. These people were committed and diligent concerning the things of God. They had a hunger for God's word. One day of reading and hearing teaching was not enough for them. They wanted more. In fact, we will see that they met to study the law all week long during the Feast of Tabernacles. So we see their diligence for the Word of God. Let's next notice their discovery. Verse 14, as Ezra read and expounded the law, the people discovered that they were to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Great discoveries are made when we give ourselves to the reading of God's Word. The Feast of Tabernacles was to be celebrated annually between the 15th day and the 20th Second day of the seventh month. Diligence, discovery, now let's see, duty. Verses 16 and 17. They had a deep desire to obey God's word. We see our first backyard campouts in verse 16 and 17. Right? They go out, they gather the branches, they build the tents on their roofs and in their yards, and they live in them as our forefathers had done in the wilderness, served as a reminder of God's faithfulness to care for the nation after leaving the land of Egypt. This celebration hadn't been observed like this since the days of Joshua. At least, it wasn't done with their whole hearts. Think about that. The Feast of Tabernacles is very important to the Jewish tradition. It had not been celebrated since the death of Joshua with their whole heart. Eight hundred years diligence discovery duty lastly delight the end of verse 17 says there was great rejoicing compliance with God's word results in joy and not just rejoicing or much rejoicing but very great rejoicing The word great comes from a Hebrew word which means magnify. The word rejoicing comes from a Hebrew word meaning to be full of joy or have great happiness and pleasure. The psalmist said, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. If we want to have the fullness of joy, we must be true to God's word. Concerning his teachings, Jesus said this to his disciples, These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full God expects us to have the fullness of joy this is what the people of Nehemiah's day had their obedience resulted in their heart being flooded with joy may it be the same for us church now I draw your attention to verse 18 because there we notice that they kept the feast exactly as laid out in God's law they didn't adjust it they didn't fine tune it The only way to worship God is His way. They brought their lives in line with God's Word. They were enjoying their relationship with God. Warren Wiersbe said this, To the believer without joy, the will of God is punishment. 
But to the believer happy in the Lord, the will of God is nourishment. Doing God's will was a delight. Every day for seven days, Ezra reads the book of the law of Moses, up to and including the eighth day, which culminates with a solemn assembly. The joy and gladness in a believer's life is related to God's word. The word of God in us brings us to very great rejoicing. If you say, well, I don't have rejoicing in my life. I'm just grumpy, grumpy, Mr. Grumpy Face or Mrs. Grumpy Face or whatever. It's because God's word is not in your life. Because his word leads to very great rejoicing. You read the promises of God and you live out what you read in the scripture and it leads to great rejoicing. I close with this. Chuck Swindoll, in one of his books, writes, tells of a time, when he spoke at a family conference, he noticed a young couple with several small children. Although they looked and sounded like a Christian family, it was evident to him that they were very miserable. He knew that divorce was on the back burner of their minds. But as the week progressed, he saw this couple change. As they listened to the teaching of God's word, the husband hung on every word. The wife had her Bible open and followed the message closely. And at the end of of the week, this couple came up to Swindoll and his wife and said, we want you to know that this week has been a 180 degree turnaround for us. When we came, we were ready to separate. We're going back stronger than we have ever been in our marriage. But that joyous news was deadened by another family's response. Chuck continues, at the same conference with the same speakers, the same truths, the same surroundings, the same schedule, another father was turned off. He wasn't open. He attended the first few sessions, but by and by the guilt became so great, and the conviction so deep that he went home. He had stayed awake the entire night before and decided to leave and not come back. His family left hurting, perhaps even more when they arrived. What was the difference? Swindoll says attitude. The couple who benefited had teachable hearts. The other man did not. Church, I need you to hear me this morning. Some people come to church with reverence for God and his word. And their attitude is, God, teach me. I want to know you more. And they're ready to respond obediently to the word of God. They profit from the preaching, no matter how long it may be. They listen to God's word, no matter how long it may be. And they're prepared to be obedient to everything that they hear from God's word. Why? Why? For one reason. They understand that God's word is being proclaimed. Not the opinion of some man. But God's word is being proclaimed. And they say, Lord, whatever it is, if I need to be obedient, let me be obedient. They come with the right attitude. But others come to the same service with sin in their heart that they don't want to deal with. And they're turned off by the exact same message. The same message that helps other people grow. They come in, they hear the message, and they think, well, that that doesn't apply to me. That applies to someone else. There's no way it applies to me. In fact, sometimes they sit in the pew and they think of exactly who that message is for. But it's definitely not them. And they hear God's word spoken time and time again. And God's word speaks to their conscience over and over and over again. It says, be obedient. And they fail to deal with 
with their sin. And Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they come and hear God's word. And it has no effect on them. None. They hear the truth, and it does nothing. If you want biblical renewal in this church, check your heart. Because it comes when our hearts are responsive and hunger for the word of God. And we say, God, no matter what, no matter what, God, I'll be obedient. We request God's word. And we reverently react to God's word. And we're obedient to what we hear. And so I simply ask you this morning, is that you today? Oh, that you would hear God's word proclaimed. And that you would respond. Let's close a prayer. Father, thank you.